Hello and welcome to this pre-Christmas edition of the Sound on Sound podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Paul White and with me is Technical Editor Hugh Rob Johns, this time wearing a pair of stick-on antlers and a white fluffy beard. Hello there. As ever, the magazine is packed full of reviews of all the latest kit, there's lots of practical advice and of course a wealth of news and features. You can see what's on offer by visiting the soundonsound.com website, where you can also search through articles from our back issues, visit our forums, or advertise your unwanted gear. Both Hugh and I hosted Q&A sessions at the Music Production Show in London during November, and we're pleased to say that they were very well attended. We'll be picking some of those questions to uh, put in the Q&A session during this podcast. We're also going to be talking a bit about some of the lesser-known aspects of studio monitoring, but first... Let's see what he has been working on for the last few weeks, other than polishing the runners on his sledge, that is. Yeah, it's very important to get those nice and slippery for this time of year. Um, yeah, I've had a lot of stuff, actually, because uh, we've got a short production cycle for the last issue of the year uh, because of Christmas holidays and so on, so it's been quite intense, actually. Uh, I did the, uh, I've reviewed the API box, which is a, a quite an interesting console. It's an unusual layout. You've only got four input channels um, and 16 uh, remix channels, effectively. Um, so it, it's limited as to the applications you want to use it for, but for a small project studio where you only ever record a few things at a time uh, or you only ever need you know, up to four microphones at a time, it's a really nice little desk. Sounds fantastic. And it's it's got all the big desk features as well in terms of transformers everywhere, very high quality uh, signal path, as you'd expect from API. Um, but it's also got uh, balanced insert sends and returns. It's got all the, the usual monitoring facilities, um, you know, PFL, AFL, mono, stereo, solo in place, uh, you can safe channels to avoid them being muted when you solo channels, all that kind of thing. Uh, really, really nice desk. Very impressed with that. Um, I've also just reviewed the Gem Sculptor, made by the same people that do the Preceptor and Compactor uh, compressors. It's a Polish company. Uh, and the Sculptor is basically a channel strip which combines a solid-state mic preamp with a very nice EQ and a protective limiter at the end. And the limiter is a bit unusual in that it has a, a diode valve as the, the active element in the uh, in the limiter chain, which is interesting. That sounds very nice. Um, I've just done the Antelope Eclipse. It's a kind of stereo D2A and A to D converter, but they've also included in there a very nice little monitor controller section. Um, so that, that's an impressive little box. The, my favourite so far is the Audio and Design Compact 760. Now, that was a compressor expander that was introduced in the very early 70s, and it was one of my favourite compressors. I, I spent a lot of my formative years using it. It's a really fabulous device um, because it has one gain element, but the side chains of the compressor and a limiter and an expander all feed into it at the same time. Uh, and there's a company in America which has basically licensed this thing to rebuild it and do a complete reissue of the thing. And they've done a really, really nice job. Um, sounds absolutely fabulous, very accurate uh, in the way they've done that. Uh, I've written a huge feature for the January issue all about loudness. Um, it's about 12 pages, I think. It's quite a big feature. So that's all about the new R128 or the BS1770 loudness regulations, the metering, the way it's likely to impact on the music industry. Uh, the Sherps vocal mic. That's a very interesting departure from Sherps. It's a large diaphragm. Well, actually, it's not. It's a small diaphragm mic that's made to look like a large diaphragm mic, um, specifically for vocals. And then monitors, PMC have got the new 228s, which is the 8-inch bass drive version of their active 2.2 monitors. Um, and just to finish off, really nice little thing, um, a company in Sweden called Harken make a thing called the P110 pop filter. And it's just a pop screen for microphones, but it's very nicely done with foam. Um, and I shall recommend that in my Christmas recommendations later. What about you, Paul? You've been playing with loads of stuff too? 
Well, I've been having a mainly microphones and monitors kind of month. I've tested the USB version on our old favourite, the Audio-Technica AT2020, and that worked pretty well. But I've also had the first samples of two new Rode microphones, the NT1 and the Rode M5. Now, the NT1 is a very familiar name because one of Rode's first mics went by that name, but this is actually a completely redesigned large diaphragm mic, cardioid pattern. It's got a vintage voicing and it comes with a Rycote licensed shock mount, which is beautifully made, all for a bargain price. By contrast, the M5, their other new mic, is a small diaphragm um, back electret model. Now, Rode are not really well known for back electret mics, but this one works, again, extremely well. It comes in match pairs, where one match pair costs about the same as one Rode NT5. And in comparative tests, it stood up pretty well against the NT5 as well, I have to say. I also looked at some microphone accessories, one of which was the Chaotica Eyeball. It's a kind of spherical foam screen with an integral pop shield that aims to screen out room reflections. This makes a practical alternative to the type of curved screen that we're all familiar with, but it's much smaller and it's lighter. It's not cheap, but it seems to do a good job and it doesn't block your view in the way that some of these curved screens do. When it comes to speakers, I've looked at the PreSonus Eris monitors, which were really good for their price, I thought, as well as some quite impressive 8-inch dual concentrics from American company Equator. I've also tested an EVE 2.1 system that I found worked really well in my room, and we'll talk a little bit more later about the potential advantages and otherwise of using 2.1 systems. Other than mics and speakers, I got to test the control capabilities of the uh, Rackmount X32 live mixers from Behringer, um, which you can drive from your iPad or even from an iPhone, and to play with the Tiny Stomp Amp, a fully featured 30-watt guitar amplifier in a pedal-sized box. I also got to try out Roger Mayer's analogue tape emulator, which sounded really sweet. That all sounds really interesting, Paul. Good stuff. Anyhow, this being almost Christmas, we really should make some suggestions about what to put in your Christmas stocking. Or, if you're listening to this after Christmas, what to spend your Christmas money on. Do you want to kick off here? What have you got on your stocking list? My stocking list? Um, well, I mentioned just now that the Harken, which is a Swedish company, Harken P110 Pop Killer. Um, and it's, it's just a really simple little... As it says, pop killer. It's, it's putting in front of microphones to catch those annoying plosives. But it's made with a foam disc. It's about 10 centimetres across and maybe 2 centimetres thick. Um, and it's held in a very simple wire frame, which means you can pop the foam out and stick it in the dishwasher if you need to clean the thing. But it's incredibly effective, and it's completely transparent audibly. Uh, a lot of pop screens, particularly the fabric ones, you can hear their effect. They kind of dull the top end a little bit. The um, the wire mesh ones, I think, are better. But this is just absolutely sublime. It really is nice. Uh, the Ryko pop screen that they do with their universal mount is a similar idea. But the Swedish one is a little bit thicker and a little bit denser and, and slightly wider. Um, and it's just really good. It costs about 50 quid. Um, I thoroughly recommend that one. Um, you may have seen in the magazine recently the Adam Hall cabinet clamp, which is a bracket that you clip on the top of guitar cabs to hold a microphone without needing a floor stand. That's a really elegant solution. Works very well. It's about 35 quid. Recommend that if you get into uh, recording guitar amps a lot, or particularly for live stage work. Um, and along the same theme, uh, the K&M 21431, which is a really snappy number, easy to remember. It's a mini boom. It's about a foot long, um, and you just stick it onto any mic stand, and you can either use it as a drop arm or a stereo bar, or you can put it on a little um, desk stand and use it as a, an arm to get inside a bass kick drum, that kind of thing. Again, it's about 20 quid. I've seen it for less than that, 12 quid I've seen in some places. And it's just one of those really useful accessories that once you've got it, you wonder how you ever managed without. And finally, of course, I have to recommend getting a Sound on Sound subscription if you don't have one already. Best value thing you can have all year. What's on your list? 
Well, we should also point out that if you don't like carrying those heavy copies of Sound on Sound, you should get the iPad subscription because it looks absolutely fabulous. You're a fan of that, aren't you? I am. I prefer the iPad subscription or anything else, not least because you get all the audio examples built in. You haven't got to go to the web to find them. Um, uh, and all the links are in there. And you get a lot more added material because with the iPad version, we're not limited for page space as we are in the paper magazine. So a lot of my um, sort of in-depth technical reports and all the plots from the audio precision test set and all that stuff all gets included in the iPad version, uh, whereas you have to go online to find it if you have the paper version. Along with some audio examples too, which of course you don't get from paper. Indeed, unless you rustle it really in a special way. Anyway, onto my Christmas list. I just have to put a can of Deoxit contact enhancer in there because it's got me out of trouble on so many occasions and it's inexpensive and one can will probably last you for five years. Anything from problem jack sockets on guitars to crackly controls to dodgy patch bays, it's fixed them all. Slightly more costly but still a fantastic problem solver is the Cloud Microphone's Cloud Lifter. This is an inline gain booster for dynamic mics. It runs from phantom power and it adds around 20 dBs of clean gain for passive ribbons or moving coil dynamic mics. It really is very, very good. Other than that, you can never go wrong with another Rycote shock mount and of course you can never have too many duvets. Anyway, that brings us on to our Q&A session and the first one is a question I think I'll direct towards Hugh because he likes these kind of questions. What are dual concentric loudspeakers and do they have any real advantages over conventional loudspeakers? Uh, well, yeah, dual concentric speaker is where the tweeter is mounted uh, effectively inside the woofer or the bass driver. So you've got both drive units essentially occupying one point in space, or that's the idea, as close as you can, um, which means you can all of the sound radiates from one point, so you should get better stereo imaging. And you don't have that problem as you have with conventional speakers where the sound comes from two displaced uh, points in space. Um, it's quite a common idea. Tannoy started it, I think, a long, long time ago. I remember seeing dual-concentric Tannoys back in the 70s. Um, there are some mechanical issues to, to overcome with it, which is why most people don't go that way. Uh, but they can be quite very effective. Do they have any technical disadvantages that you know of, other than the, the most simple ones have got the same dispersion in the horizontal and the vertical planes? Yeah, they tend to be symmetrical, that's right. Um, well, I mean, there's the mechanical issues of just trying to integrate two separate physical motor systems into into one small space so that that can cause a few issues and i find certainly with some of the um the tannoy systems that they can be a little bit squawky uh, as a tonal thing but whether that's by design or just the nature of the beast i don't know i've heard some i mean the equator ones for instance are very good i think yes i did like the equator ones and they've got um a shaped waveguide so that they in fact do control the dispersion so you've got more width than height hmm um, there's a German company called Geithein who make very high-quality broadcast monitor speakers, uh, and they actually put a plate across the front of the bass driver and then put the tweeter on that plate. So it's not physically integrated into the into the woofer, but it's still coincident with it, concentric with it uh, in front, and that, that works quite well. I suppose they also have to time-align these two things in some clever way. Yeah, usually electronically in that, that particular case, but yeah. OK, well, that seemed to clear that one up. Thanks, Hugh. The next one, again, you can kick off with this if you like. Does a control room setup always have to be exactly symmetrical to work properly? And I'm guessing this is from someone who's got a small domestic room where things can't be set up in the ideal way. Yeah, we had that question at, uh, at the MPS show, I think, didn't we? Or something very similar to it. It's, it's generally best to try and keep the room symmetrical if you can, but no, it's not essential. And often, actually, deliberately making it slightly asymmetrical can sometimes help uh, to smooth out the... Well, not to smooth out the room modes, but to make the room modes less problematic than they might otherwise be. 
Yeah, this is a low frequency thing, isn't it? I've always thought it's good to try and make the room symmetrical at mid and high frequencies, but maybe a little asymmetrical at low frequencies. And sometimes that can involve putting acoustic absorbers either side of you in a symmetrical way where you're not necessarily uh, sitting exactly in the centre of the room. Yeah, that's right. Keeping it symmetrical for the mid and high end keeps your stereo image stable and accurate and balanced. Um, but as you say, if you go work slightly offset with the with the low end side of things, then you excite the room modes in slightly different ways and you can get a, a subjectively more even response that way. And it doesn't take much either. I mean, a few inches, six inches one way or the other can make an enormous difference. And I know it's a bit of a fag having to drag all your speakers around and keep keep positioning them, but it's it's well worth the effort generally. And once you've found the right place, of course, they're going to stay there for a long time. Thanks, Hugh. OK, well, since you just loaded me with those two, I'm going to throw one back at you. Uh, somebody was asking me the other day, how can they reduce the sound leakage through a domestic double-glazed window? I mean, obviously, double-glazed windows are better than single-glazed for noise leakage anyway, but how could you improve that? Well, firstly, look at the double-glazed window you've got. If it's an old one, you might find that the air gap is narrower than it is with the newer ones, and if the rubber seals have perished at all, it may not be airtight. Um, because the way a double-glazed window works is that, one, it provides a very good airtight seal, and the other is that you have two panes of glass with an air gap in between them, and the wider that air gap is, the more effective the isolation. Now, assuming that your window's OK, you can improve the situation by putting another pane of glass on the inside of the wall so that you have the thickness of the wall air gap between the original double-glazed window and your new sheet of glass. Now, the new sheet of glass should be heavy, uh, six millimetres recommended, which is about a quarter of an inch, so it's pretty heavy glass. You can put that in a simple wooden frame and then screw it over the opening. Of course, it's not easy to open it to clean, so you may want to rig up some easy way of taking it off temporarily. And I often recommend putting a couple of packets of silica gel inside just to mop up any condensation that might try to occur. But that can make a huge difference. Is the key there to have different thicknesses of glass? Is that what to avoid resonances and that kind of thing? In a large window, like a control room window, it's very common to have different weights of glass and maybe even to angle them. But I think in, in this particular instance, you're just going for thicker glass to get more mass there because the heavier the barrier, the less uh, energy gets through it. Right, this is another question that we can both chip in on, I think. This one says, When I set up the mic input on my audio interface near to maximum gain so that I can get enough level out of my ribbon mic, I hear a kind of digital chatter in the background. How can I get rid of this? That sounds like it's a USB or a Firewire interface issue to me. Um, I've not had much problem with, with that kind of thing, but I think you had a similar issue, didn't you? Yes, I've noticed this with one or two of the um, interfaces that are doing the rounds at the moment. And it's not really a fault. It's nothing you can get rid of very easily. It's just due to internal grounding issues and the fact that with some combinations of uh, interface and computer, then a little bit of the digital circuit noise breaks through onto the analogue. And the best thing is not to run them at maximum gain. So what do you do if you want to use a ribbon mic? Well, you've got two alternatives. One is to use an external microphone preamplifier and plug that into the line input on your interface, which will be running at a much lower gain. The other is to use one of those cloud lifter devices, which I mentioned earlier, which gives you around 20 dBs of very clean gain, runs off phantom power, and plugs straight into the regular microphone input. That means that you can run the whole thing 20 dBs less gain, and so you're not going to get any of this background noise coming through. 
So basically what you're saying is it's just background noise uh, and by reducing the amount of gain you've got in the mic preamp, you're going to be picking up less of that through the system. Yes, I think it's always the case that the mic preamps built into the interface are going to be more vulnerable to interference from the circuitry than an external one. So it's not necessarily a faulty design, it's just sometimes uh, an unfortunate match between the way the computer USB works or the firewire and the interface itself. Is it more prevalent with firewire than USB? I've found it with both. Mm. I only, I've only used USB interfaces in, in regular use, and I've never had a problem with those. OK, so the only solution then really is to put your gain outside the unit rather than relying on the mic preamps inside the unit for all your gain. Yeah, it sounds like a sensible plan. OK, now it's time for our Tech Talk section, and this time we're going to look at the implications of using a 2.1 system. That is a system with two speakers plus a sub because, uh, as he was probably pointed out in many previous articles, uh, using a high-powered sub in a small room is usually a recipe for exciting the room modes in a, an unpleasant and, and rather excessive way, isn't it? It is rather, yes. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of subwoofers generally, but a lot of systems now are coming out in this 2.1 configuration, and, and to be fair, it does have some useful benefits and advantages. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, the first is that the main speakers are much smaller because essentially you've got a three-way system rather than a two. So you've got two-way tops and the, and the sub makes up the third part. So it's much easier to set up in a small room where you haven't got a lot of space either side of your computer screens. Um, the other advantage, which I find is a very big advantage, is that the sub can be moved around to the point in the room that gives you the most even response. Whereas um, the main speakers in any small room usually have to go where it's convenient for mixing or where the doors and windows allow it, and you don't have a lot of flexibility in repositioning them. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's another point with the very small satellite speakers, the, the sort of main left and right speakers. Because they're so small, they have very narrow baffles, and that means the stereo imaging is usually extremely good. The wider the front baffle, the more diffuse the imaging tends to get. So that's a useful benefit. Um, but as you say, with normal stereo speakers, full-range stereo speakers, their positions have to be fixed because it determines the stereo image in the first place. Um, so you've got little leeway in how you can move them to avoid exciting the room modes, whereas when you've got this separate subwoofer, provided you don't go completely barmy and, and stick it you know, out the back of the room or something silly, you can move it a fair way around and, and find the, the optimum position. And that involves our old uh, technique of, of crawling around on the floor. Yeah, basically you're swapping the position of the sub and the engineer. So let me explain. You put the sub where you normally put your chair and then you play some kind of busy bass part through it. And then you crawl around the room looking for the place where the bass sounds the most even, which uh, hopefully is somewhere near the front of the room, but usually off centre. Yeah, try playing different kinds of music and particularly music in different keys because you'll often find that uh, some notes will be quite boomy and some notes will be almost missing because of the way the room modes work. Uh, and if you only play music in one key, you can miss some of that. We find we, we have a little um, a sequence of, of descending bass notes we programmed on a, on a synth, uh, and you just play every semitone all the way down in a, in a sequence, little stu staccato notes, uh, and that reveals boomy and missing notes very quickly and easily. Uh, and uh, it's a very good way of working, actually, and you just need to crawl around in all the likely positions where you could put a subwoofer and figure out which one of those gives you the most balanced and even sound. Yeah, when you find it, that's where the sub goes. So it's a pretty easy way of doing it. I think the main thing to bear in mind is that in a small room, I've tested a few systems recently, and something with a 7 or 8-inch sub even will go down lower than a typical pair of two-way speakers. You don't really need anything much bigger than that in a small room. No, I agree. I mean, normally, our normal advice for small rooms is to actually go with 
two-way speakers that have a fairly limited low-end response. So maybe you'd only have a five-inch bass driver, specifically because you don't want to put a lot of energy in below the sort of 70, 80, 60, 70, 80 hertz range because it's just going to cause lots of Rumo problems. With um, a 2.1 subsystem, they generally are designed to be full-range systems, and they will go down pretty low, uh, certainly 30 or 40 hertz without too much trouble. Um, and it's just a case of trying to, to balance how much of that low-end energy you put in the room. And the very worst thing you can do is, is crank up the subwoofer level so that you get that, that physical bass feeling, because it's just going to produce a very lumpy, uneven, and, and very distracting bass, I think. Yes, that's true. In fact, the best thing to do in a small room may actually be to reduce the sub-level slightly below what would normally be considered optimum. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, really, you want to notice that the sub is, is working only when you turn it off. If you're aware that it's there when you listen to music normally, it's, it's almost certainly way too loud. Um, so basically, set it up so that you, it's just filling in that bottom end just gently um, and giving you a hint of what's going on at the bottom end without becoming dominant. That's one good thing about buying a dedicated 2.1 system. The thing will have a calibration setting. Usually, yeah. You know, the crossovers will be optimised for that particular uh, combination of satellite and sub. Um, sometimes you'll find companies produce one sub that works with a, a number of different speakers, uh, and in those cases there are often preset equaliser settings to optimise the way the crossover works. There's also a phase control, which, which may be simply just sort of in-phase or out-of-phase, or it may switch in 90-degree phase increments, or it may be continuously variable. And that's about trying to make sure that the, the sound that comes from the subwoofer arrives at the listening position in phase with the sound that comes from the satellite speakers through the crossover region. Because obviously you may end up with the subwoofer slightly further back or occasionally slightly further forward uh, compared with the, the main satellite speakers. And if you don't get that phase relationship right, then what you'll end up with is either a, a big peak or a big notch going through that crossover region. And that's usually in the sort of 100 to 150 hertz range with the small system, I guess. That's right, yes. Yeah. And the way you set that thing up is you look in the handbook, find out where the crossover is. Let's say it's 100 hertz for the sake of argument. Um, play a, a tone, either from a synth or from a, a test record or something, at that frequency, 100 hertz. And you know because it's in the crossover that it's going to be reproduced both by the satellites and by the subwoofer. And then you adjust the phase control to get it as loud as you can because when it's as loud as it'll go, then you know it's, it's arriving uh, maximally in phase. And once you've done that, then you can fine trim the actual level control to get your balance right again. Finally, on that subject, I should say that you shouldn't put your sub underneath a desk that's got closed sides because that forms a resonant cavity. It should be out in the open if possible or underneath the desk with legs. And ideally, it should be positioned right on the floor, not on a shelf. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, and try to keep it between the, the two satellite speakers if you can, rather than outside. Uh, you know, if you imagine you've got the triangle between the listening, uh, your listening point and the two speakers, try and keep it somewhere within that triangle or just behind that triangle rather than out to the sides, particularly with smaller systems, because a lot of those subs can actually produce quite a lot of mid-range energy, uh, and that will sort of give away their position, which can be quite distracting. Thanks, Sue. That sounds like good advice. So that's all we've got time for this month. So it's goodbye from me, Paul White, and it's goodbye from Hugh. Ho, ho, ho.